I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, my guest is journalist and author Judith Hoare, but even though Judith herself has a fascinating life and career, Judith and I are going to be talking about Dr. Claire Weeks because Judith wrote the definitive biography of Dr. Claire Weeks. It's called The Woman Who Cracked the Anxiety Code, The Extraordinary Life of Dr. Claire Weeks. It came out in 2019. So 
Where do I even begin? So let's begin with my guest, Judith Hoare. She's a journalist and author. She worked for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and at the Australian Financial Review, where she covered politics, business, and broader social issues before being appointed features editor and finally deputy editor of the newspaper, a position she held for 20 years. She is, again, the author of the aforementioned book about Dr. Claire Weeks, and Judith now lives in Sydney, Australia. Dr. Claire Weeks is from Australia as well. And the story of how I came to read this book and my connection with Australia and how that just wonderful continent and is just all tied up in my uh, tale of fear flying and anxiety recovery. But I tell that story to Judith on the podcast. So you'll hear that. But what I'm here to say is that Dr. Claire Weeks, if you get no other book about panic attacks or anxiety, then get Dr. Claire Weeks's books because she is the OG. She is the original person to ever help people who were having panic attacks because she had them herself. And this is what's so extraordinary about her story. And you'll hear Judith and I talk about it, but just to bring you up to speed, Dr. Claire Weeks was born in 1903. She was a general practitioner in Australia, but she went to college and was very genius in the studies of biology and evolution. She was granted so many fellowships where she studied all over the world and she studied with really renowned people. And she basically was studying lizards and, and I know you're going to think I'm about to say lizard brain, but it's nothing to do with that. She was studying why um, some creatures lay their eggs in water, why some lay their eggs on land. And so what she was studying is how have these creatures evolved. And one of the things that she discovered and proved is that environment has a lot to do with the evolution of something. And so later, she would use that theory about you know, your own personal environment, your living environment at home, your work environment, your social environments, where you, you know, where you actually live in the world informs if you have panic and anxiety. It informs how well you're able to deal with it or not. Yes, genetics play a component, but she didn't believe that was the entire story and she's completely right. So basically it she just sort of followed her heart and went from being this uh, biologist and then finding the work not that interesting. And then she thought she would be a singer and help people with their breath work because she thought singing was science. And then she became a travel writer, which the timing of it was terrible because she was encouraging people to take trips to Europe. And then Hitler invaded Poland and you know how that went. And so she decided to go back to school again and study being a general practitioner. And when she had her own practice, she began noticing that people weren't actually ill, that they were suffering from nervous system disorders, which was causing them to have anxiety or panic. And that's what I love about her. She wasn't saying, oh, it's all in your head, but she was saying your nervous system is out of whack. And, you know, there wasn't the word agoraphobia back then. Eventually that word was coined 
and she used it in the title of one of her books, but she was basically helping people who were agoraphobic, people who had had a panic attack maybe in a store or in a certain, you know, in a car, and then they avoided, right? That's most people's instinct to not panic or feel anxiety is, oh, I'll just avoid the place I was when I felt it last. Even though you know that it's not the car that gave you anxiety, but that you had anxiety in the car. So maybe if you don't go near cars anymore, that'll help and eventually your life gets smaller and smaller. And what Dr. Claire Weeks did that was brilliant that people have improved upon and she gets very little to no credit for it is we all know about fight or flight. Yes, animals do this too. And it's from our ancestry. And we used to be running around foraging for our food, blah, blah, blah. So while it's perfectly normal when faced with something that could eat us or something that could kill us, you know, whether it's a soldier with a gun or a plane that's crashing or, you know, our ancestors um, had to deal with, you know, wild animals, it's, it's perfectly normal and it's what we're supposed to do to fight or freeze or go into flight in danger. But what Dr. Claire Weeks was trying to teach people is that but that's not usually what causes us to panic because panic is different than fear. Panic almost involves what she called the second fear. So first fear is this thing that stimulates you to go into fight, flight, or freeze. The second fear are your thoughts about how your body now feels, your thoughts about the anxious sensations that you're feeling, and now you've worked yourself up and you think you're having a heart attack. And the first thing that was scaring you, that's not even a thought anymore. But it all happens so quickly that it's hard to understand when it's happening that you have basically almost made a choice to have the second fear. Now, obviously, in a case of a panic attack, you don't have to have a soldier pointing a gun at you. You don't have to be in a plane that's crashing. You can just be sitting at your desk at work. You can be laying in bed at night. You can have a panic attack that puts you into fight or flight. And again, that is just your nervous system doing its thing. Who knows why it's doing it, right? It could be a million reasons. Going back to childhood trauma, it could be you were upset at work today and you stuffed your feelings down, or it just could be, who knows? Your nervous system is just going off. Because the point is in the moment, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, in the moment, you need to handle it. And in that moment, you don't need to go back to your childhood. In that moment, you need to employ the parasympathetic nervous system. You need to be doing something not to fight it and not to even try to relax, which is the same as fighting it, but to accept it, let it pass through you and move on. And that was the big thing with Dr. Claire Weeks was accept that the panic attack is happening to you. That doesn't mean accept it. You love it. Oh my God, we're going to have them every day. It's great. There's nothing I can do about it. That's not what she's saying. She's saying it's here. Let it pass through you. It will go away quicker and it will go away in a more real way because you're not sort of hanging on to it and like re-adrenalizing um, yourself. You know, it's like the cycle is fear, adrenaline, fear, adrenaline, fear, adrenaline. And when we fight the panic attack and act like we need to stop this from happening because it's bad to have one, right? When you act like the panic symptoms are going to kill you and you fight them because you're fighting for your life, you're going to make it worse. You're just making more adrenaline and you're responding to fear as though the fear is correct. But if you let it pass through you, you're showing yourself, oh, this literally cannot kill me. I mean, I don't like how it feels, but you will not prolong it. 
And then after a while, you will learn not to fear it. So if you have a panic attack and you're fearing it and you're fearing it and you're fighting it because it just feels so abnormal, it feels like you're dying and you don't want to die, so you fight it, you fight it, you fight it. When that battle is finally over and it can sometimes feel like an hour, and it can even be an hour in the sense that you're not going to panic straight through for an hour, but it'll come in waves, you will not want that to happen again and you will fear it happening again. So that if it happens again, you will respond the exact same way. And then because you fear one happening again, you might avoid going to certain places. So that was her point is if you let it pass through you, you will learn not to fear them. And that's where the recovery is. Like people are going to just willy nilly have a panic attack sometimes because we're just made up of nerves and we're a nervous system. And so sometimes the nervous system just like goes offline for a second, does something weird. But if you don't fear it, then you are free because it's the fear that keeps us panicking. And it's the fear that keeps us from living our lives, right? Again, fear would lead to avoidance. But if you say, well, I'm not afraid of having another panic attack. I mean, I don't feel like having another one, but I don't fear it. Well, then you're free. So then if one happens, you're like, oh, this thing, you know, you let it pass through you. So again, it's like you might still feel fear when you're having that panic attack, but you're not going to fight against it. Like our body is always trying to keep us alive. Our body's not always right. You know, it's like your dog when they're barking at your friend that's coming over and you're like, no, 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 this person's safe. Like this is not an intruder, but they're going to respond to everyone coming through the door. Like it's an intruder because on the time that it is one, that's how they're going to keep you safe. Our nervous system does the same thing. It starts freaking out and then we respond like a dog. We get afraid of what our nerves are doing. And so we fight it because we're like thinking we're in danger. We're going to die. So we fight it. We're like fighting for our life the way you would be if you were drowning or something or someone was trying to bury you, you know, and we should know better because we're not dogs, right? And so we know there's no need to fear this. These sensations literally cannot kill us. So what I liked about her is she kept it really simple, you know, Um, She treated a lot of people that had tried psychoanalysis and all of these things that just didn't work. And I'm obviously not saying that therapy doesn't work, but in the moment of panic and anxiety, it's really about using the mind to combat the nervous system so that we can then use our physical body to help calm us down. And again, she keeps it super simple. So she was concerned with the severe long-term effects that anxiety and panic disorders had on the lives of her patients. And she noted that patients did not necessarily suffer from anxiety problems because they had flawed personalities or traumatic childhoods. The problems were caused by the patient having a habit of fear avoidance made worse or caused by a very responsive, sensitized nervous system. She was critical of both Freudian approaches and attempts of behaviorists to desensitize their patients using relaxation and breathing techniques. Because again, she she felt like that's fine. I mean, relax and breathe in your own spare time. But when you're panicking, to tell your body to relax is, is again, you are trying to deny these sensations that you're feeling and the sensations won't kill you. If you let them through, they'll become less threatening. So she liked to call all of this nervous illness. And it wasn't because she was afraid to use the word anxiety. You know, it actually brought me fully around again to thinking of why do we even call it anxiety and anxiety disorders and this and that. I mean, you know, there's so many different diagnoses of anxiety, but, and of course, there are situations that are different from the others, but it, overall, in general, if we're talking about panic attacks, just stay with that one for now. 
it really is so physical. You know, it's not, and Judith and I talk about this, like, I'm not even a fan of the words mental health because what does it even mean? Because it's not necessarily emotions that we're talking about. These are physical reactions and then behaviorism. I mean, it's it's all to do with the mind and everything, but I really wish people understood that panic attacks are such a physical thing and I, I don't really have the words, but I'm I'm just trying to say that if we take care of our body and our nervous system, that first, that will affect our brains, right? And that's why another one of my heroes from long ago who wrote um, and invented progressive muscle relaxation is, is, and I'm forgetting his name, even though he's a hero of mine, but that's how my brain works or doesn't work sometimes. And let me just look it up because I can't, I can't do him this way. Progressive muscle relaxation. Oh, Dr. Edmund Jacobson. That's right. You know, he was like, do that to relax instead of have a drink or something like that. And he found that it lowered so many things in the human body, like stress and tension and high blood pressure or whatever. So anyway, big fan of Dr. Claire Weeks. What was so cool about her is when she started treating patients. She'd go to their homes. She was very eccentric. She'd people move in with her. There was this um, undertone in the book of like, was she a lesbian? Because she had this best friend that she lived with. And she, every relationship she was in with a man, she would end. And But it just doesn't, like nobody really knows. I mean, I think she was, but um, so you'll hear me not get into that with Judith because there's just too much to talk about. But you will hear us mention that she lived with her best friend. And I don't want you to think that I'm like an idiot, <laughs> you know, like. Um, but she was very ahead of her time in the sense that, you know, she was very anti like housework and and in the sense that she felt like a lot of women were feeling trapped and agoraphobic because, you know, they were housewives and didn't have a choice. I mean, not that like being a housewife necessarily is a bad thing, of course, but she meant if, if these women didn't even have choices and they were feeling agoraphobic and then the men go and they deal with their anxiety by getting drunk after work and now you have to deal with the drunk husband. And so a lot of patients moved in with her is my point. And I just think that is so funny. And then eventually, you know, in her 60s and 70s, I mean, she wrote these books in her late 50s and in her 60s and 70s, she was touring the world because she was becoming a best-selling author in many different countries. She was traveling to America to go on late-night talk shows. I mean, she was quite active and getting more and more famous until she was in her 70s because this was the only thing helping anxious people who had had no language for this. And they would you know, fly to Australia to meet her and just cling to copies of their books and just say, you understand me. And so she's really quite magical, and I've talked, my God, long enough about her. Let's just get into my episode today um, with my fabulous guest, Dr. Judith Hoare. And as we talk about who I wish could have been a guest on this show, Dr. Claire Weeks. Why did you want to write a book, such a detailed and well-researched book, about Dr. Claire Weeks? Well, uh, there's probably a number of aspects to that um, question. But look, firstly, she just had such a profound impact on me that I never forgot the gift she gave me of understanding. And um, I just couldn't believe I came across when I was very young, my 20s, and she was so helpful. And I kept thinking, why does this woman not have more recognition in Australia? And of course, there's no internet back then. You couldn't 
sort of research someone easily. I just was aware that, you know, various sort of obviously her books were on sale, but I couldn't work out why she had no, um, you know, there was no plaques to her. There was Australia didn't seem to realise they had had this person who was so incredibly helpful. Well, I didn't know how widely helpful she was, but I was a journalist and I became a long-form editor and I was very aware of how rare the gift of writing, actually really good writing and clear writing and writing that changes mm. things, writing that changes the way um, people think and live is is rare. And I thought this woman has got it um, to me and yeah. that was from a professional point of view. So when I decided to step back from journalism, um, I was into my 60s and I thought I'd rather, I'd been working on long-form journalism and I thought I'd really be interested in doing a, something longer myself. And I thought what I, I, I you know, I, I can get, I have to be very passionate about a subject I want to write about. I won't, won't just sit down and write so that wouldn't interest me at all. So I came up, I suddenly thought of her one night, I was sitting, you know, with a glass of white wine in my hand and, and ruminating on what I could write about it and her name jumped into my head and I thought, that's it, that is it, she is it. But she's surely been written about, I cannot be the first person, I won't have been the first person. So, But a little bit of research turned up that amazingly no one else had written her biography. So that was the first step where I was really thrilled with the idea and then I thought, but I'm, I believe she's good because I've had a lifetime of assessing writing to confirm my really personal experience of her gift, but I better test that. So I mm. found on a little Wikipedia entry a reference to a, an American psychiatrist called Dr. Robert Dupont who was um, very well known for his work in the, um, um, he was called the drugs are helping, you know, stem the tide of drug addiction in the 70s as presidential advisor. So he had a really um, quite illustrious background and I noticed he was very um affirmative about her her work and spoke very highly of her but he was the only one so I got his email I emailed him and honestly overnight overnight came back this email and in the header said I am the guy you want I will give you all the help you need this wow. woman has never been recognized I'm here to do anything for, and he was just incredible so the next day I had you are I think a confirmation. I think, yes, this woman is really significant and I think your instincts are absolutely right and I will help you. And at that point, I just literally never looked back. For five years, I worked on that book, which, as you say, has a lot of yeah. research in it, but it was a joy. Well, what I appreciate that you're talking about her from a writer's perspective is the reason her books were so successful beyond the fact that she was the first person to talk about what we now know as agoraphobia, panic attacks, and anxiety is that she herself experienced it. But as you're saying, beyond that, as a writer, you know, she wrote it beyond just that she wrote it in first person. A lot of it was taken from transcriptions, according to your book, um, of actual conversations she had with people. But yeah, it is the way she wrote that you feel as though she's writing to you. Oh, that's that's absolutely right. It's she's talking to you. And the books are written in the first person. They open with, if you are sitting down reading this book now, you will have no trouble concentrating. You may not have been able to read a newspaper, but this book you will be able to concentrate on. And it's true. You'll be able to read it from beginning to end. And I remember doing that myself because it's written in the first person, but it's written with such an intimate knowledge of what the reader is going through that, that of course, for the reader, no one had ever shown such intimate knowledge of what they thought was such bizarre internal life that they and disturbing internal life that they had that they were just 
totally captivated. And I think if you happen to pick up the book while you're feeling anxious, it is a way of arresting that. It, it engages you directly. You don't feel like you're reading some theories or that you're outside of it. It's, it's very calming. Um, and so did you ever have anxiety in your life? Is that why she is someone that meant so much to you? Yes, I did. I did. I was in, it was rather, it was in, in my early 20s, um, you know, I was probably, maybe I was an anxious child, but I don't remember it being a major issue as a child. But in my, in my late teens and early 20s, it's the sort of um, leaving home period, you know, where you're dealing with the world and a few, a few slightly disastrous combinations. I, uh, well, not disastrous, they were wonderful in some ways and bad in others, but I became a journalist in the National Press Gallery um, and, um, you know, that was, I was covering the Australian Federal Parliament every day and I had studied politics and I thought this job was just absolutely fantastic and I thought it was a privilege to get up every day and, and cover um, um, these, you know, significant affairs of the world and, and so on. So, um, but it was a very demanding life. I mean, being a daily journalist is pretty hept and hyped and um I also, there was a lot of partying in that thing. You know, it was a very male atmosphere. There were a lot of late nights, you know. There was, yeah. And I, I, got, I got sick at some stage. It was just a, a, um, a, a, a I had a particular um, medical issue with, that, was a, that was a very minor one, but it led to a, a bit of a hemorrhaging. And as a consequence, I got very run down. I went back to work too early. Um, and I got heart palpitations, and it's a classic mm. story. She got mm. her her panic attack started the same way, and you know I was already run down. I was tired. I was having these late nights. I was working too hard. I was overexcited. It was this extraordinary febrile atmosphere. They'd sacked the government of the day. The governor general had sacked him. It was a big scandal in the state. It was in the seventies. So all these things considered, I ended up very as she would say, living on my nerves. And the, and the mm. actual um, palpitations terrified me. So I'd go to cardiologists and they'd say, well, look, it's quite within the normal range. So there was nothing wrong with me. And then that crucial step occurred where you sort of become frightened of yourself. You know, no one yeah. can reassure you. And it's that crucial turning point where you start to fear your symptoms. And once you do that, instead of just saying, oh, you know, I had a late night, heart palpitations, a bit weird for someone who's fit in my age, but, you know, stuff happens. Instead of doing that, you start interrogating it all the time. You know, maybe they'll come back. You know, why am I getting them? Maybe I really do have a bad heart they haven't picked up. And once you go down that path, you're sort of alarming yourself. You've become frightened of your own symptoms. And that was her, two of her huge, simple, simple but hugely important ideas are that you, um, you, you first get sensitised, you know, anxiety mm -hmm. is a sensitisation process and that you can be sensitised not just by heart palpitations, it can be a, a worry, a rumination, a problem um, as well, a shame, a disgrace. Something, This, it, you, but the process kickstarts sensitisation so you are receptive to what she would call tricks of the nerves and then the next step is you become frightened of your symptoms. So once you're sensitised and then you're frightened of your symptoms, you are absolutely primed to suffer from, I don't know, it could be panic attacks, it could be chronic anxiety. She wouldn't divvy it up and give it a label, but you are really primed for high anxiety. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. What I loved about her book and what I'm gathering from your experience writing about her is she just put one foot in front of the other, took the next step, took risks, life unfolded in front of her. And with each weird little coincidence, it led her down the next thing that led her to become this person who, as you say, cracked the anxiety code. And I'm in the spirit of the weird little coincidences. My story is that, you know, I had undiagnosed anxiety and panic attacks since I was a kid, first manifested in fear of flying, but had all the physical symptoms the heart palpitations, the but but for me it was more of that very distressing derealization, depersonalization in a in a panic attack, but ultimately the fear of the fear, the fear of the symptoms. And throughout my life, I feel I have wasted a lot of time in my 30s and early 40s with God bless her, but with a therapist who kept wanting to go back in childhood, go back, go back, go back. And the only things that helped me were, you know, 
looking at things on my own outside of these sessions. And I had to fly to Australia. And that was, you know, again, I'd had a fear of flying my whole life. I, I stopped flying for a long time and then I had to start again because it was part of my job. And I was flying around America. And I, for some odd reason, I remember saying, uh, okay, I can fly around America as needed for my job. I'll take a little bit of clonopin. That, by the way, never helped squash the anxiety completely or panic. It was enough to make me feel like I wasn't going to explode, but it was just my nerves on fire the whole time. And I said, but I'll never be able to fly to Australia, for example. That was my boundary. No Australia. And I got this work opportunity to go to Australia. And if I didn't go, it would have been absurd. It was free. It was first class. It was with my coworkers. It was a job I was on. I would have had to just not go to work that week. And something told me, well, it's really ironic that you just keep obsessing over how you're never going to Australia. Now you have an opportunity. You have to go. And the flight was pretty scary, but I got through it. And But anyway, I was looking for things to listen to on the plane. And I found her thing passed through panic. And honest to God, it didn't oh, dawn on how me. how wonderful. Yeah, it didn't dawn on me until I read your book about her that she's Australian. I wasn't thinking about her accent. Well, to me, it's an accent. I w it's not like the book started with, hello, I'm Australian. And, you know, I cracked the... I didn't know who she was. I Same thing that that most people thought was, oh, she's just some self-help woman. I don't know, you know. And But it really helped. And then, of course, I put it away for a while. And then began my love affair with Australia. I started to go every year. I would live there three months a year for a job. I flew by myself there. I even comforted a nervous flyer whom I didn't know that sat next to me. And it got to the point where, you know, I, I overcame my fear of flying through a lot of different things. One of them was her, Claire Weeks. But it was just so funny that it specifically became Australia. It was like where I went every year. And when the plane would land, I wouldn't even want to get off the plane because I felt like the 17 hours had just flown by and I had another movie to watch. And so long story even longer, when I was um, starting this podcast, I wasn't thinking about her. And I ordered a book on Amazon. I thought I was ordering a book about a, a, a bunch of women that were doing coding as spies in World War II, like to bring down the Nazis. And something with the word code, and I put it into Amazon, and I ordered your book. But I meant to order this book about women in World War II. You're joking. No. Oh, and so your book funny. comes to me last year and I'm like, the woman who cracked the anxiety code, huh? Oh, well, I didn't mean to order this, but I'll just keep it. Maybe I'll read it someday. So I have it on my bedside table. And then during this podcast, I'm interviewing this guy who, out of the goodness of his heart, just helps people with anxiety with this podcast. And he talks a lot about um, Claire Weeks. And so he mentioned her a few times in our interview. And I said, wait, I know that name. She's did the, the pass through panic and the float and accept. And he said, yeah. And I said, you know, she was the first help I really got with panic. And then that night I looked on my bedside table and I went, wait, this is about Claire. It just, it was so weird. I don't, I mean, it's not that weird a story, but, and then we found you and you agreed to come on the show. But I just felt like, especially at this time in my life, with doing the podcast and realizing how many different types of anxiety, in quotes, I'm talking to people about and how many people still to this day don't know what to do about it. And they come to me and I'm always like, I'm just a comedian with a podcast, you know, but in a way <laughs> it is, 
it helped remind me that it's more simple than even I was making it um, even recently, which is that, you know, the whole therapy thing and going to your past that, as she said, it's interesting. It's not really necessary right now for what's going on. And, and um, it all starts with fixing your nervous system and the thoughts come. So that's just my long story about there's just something kind of magical about well, her. Do you that, know what? Uh, they're, they're, yeah. Look, I, I just have to say every bit of this book has been touched with magic from the, from the you know, moment I got that first, I'm the guy you want from Dr. Robert DuPont, you know, the passion people have. You come across these weird coincidences. I'll just tell you briefly one and then we can get onto the actual issues, I suppose. But, but when I wrote the book, it was sent off to be endorsed by a very well-known um, Australian broadcaster called Lee Sales, who's very good. And Lee had agreed to read my book and she'd agreed to read someone else's book. She was only doing two books for the year and she picked mine and this other book by a well-known Australian musician called Claire Bowditch, who wrote, was, had written her memoir. Anyway, she reads my book in manuscript form. She puts it down. She sends the endorsement off. And next minute I get a text from her saying, I'm sitting here freaking out. And I, of course, she then contacted me and she said, I put your book down. This is a woman who's got a full-time job every night interviewing politicians and she just does this, you know, she's, she's, yeah. a, she's a great contributor and helps other people and she just was looking at these two books and she kindly agreed to do it and make time in her very busy life. She put my book down. The next book she picked up from a woman who was a different generation from me, 20 years younger, had dedicated her memory to none other than Dr. Claire Weeks. Now, oh, you have wow. bear in mind, Lisa had never heard of Claire Weeks before she picked up my book. She puts it down and she picks up the second manuscript, which is dedicated to the memory of Claire Weeks. Claire Weeks died in 1990. Her first book was written in 1962 and a 40-year-old musician was writing about her life being saved by Claire Weeks mm. when she was in her 20s. Um, you know, these little coincidences, I've forgotten most of them because my brain's getting older, but it was almost, she's not religious, Claire Wicks, but I felt like every now and again I thought, you're up there, you're up there, you're pulling these strings. It's too, the coincidences are, were really touching, really touching. Yeah, and if anyone's pulling strings, it's her. But basically, and I've got all this from your book, but at age 25 in 1928, she made academic history on the way to get her doctorate, first class honors degree in science, first woman to do that um, at the University of Sydney. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, she was aiming for a Rockefeller Fellowship that she would further her studies in England. And she gets this sore throat. Then she has an operation. It's botched. And she's told she has tuberculosis and sent to live in a sanatorium for six months by herself. Yes. And, then, and she comes from a big family. She's in her early 20s. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, then the doctors come to her. Oh, sorry, misdiagnosis. Good to go. <laughs> and she writes about, and you write about that. When she left, that's when the heart palpitation started and she was convinced it was a serious heart condition and she was terrified that the doctors had made a mistake and maybe something was wrong with her heart. She was overwhelmed. She went to live with a friend who was married to a doctor and her, you know, she said this was the turning point in her life. Her heart was racing and she didn't know yet then that fear was managing her heartbeat and she was in this vicious cycle. So life goes on and she's studying her specialty, which is evolution and she works with this and and there's such a great theme of of feminism and women's rights in this book that is unfortunate in a way because she was in a time when you know she was up against it in terms of society not taking her seriously and expecting her to be a housewife but she worked with um Lancelot Harrison am i saying that right yes that's right 
he was a professor of zoology and he saw women as equals in life and in work and his wife was a feminist. And he invited her to go on this rugged expedition into unexplored terrain where they would study lizards. And that helped, you know, with what became like her lasting reputation in zoology. But I just found that interesting. Her first kind of lucky break in a way is having to live alone in that sanatorium. Which yeah, well, you know, well, she she ruminated on her. She had too much time alone. She had already had heart palpitations by that stage. But it just shows you, and you will know, Jen, that you know it starts with one thing. But anxiety can take many different forms. It can invade the body and the mind and be very invasive and and have all of these different sort of symptoms. And people they can all mind and body and people feel they're out of control they're going a bit mad so it starts with one thing but then it then it sort of morphs into something big and scary that's and people just get basically invade basically is look it's quite simple they're invaded by fear they're terrified but they don't understand what they're terrified about so then they conclude they're mad so it sort of goes around in a nasty circle so then i mean she gets this lucky break I'm, i'm not lucky she's brilliant but still luck involved in that you know, one of the very few men that saw women as equals wanted to take her under his wing. And, and she studied with him and, and continued her study. Uh, I'm just putting it very simply on lizards and and other reptiles. And the audience may think I'm going to lizard brain and I'm not. But just for her, the studies of and it's way over my head, but I sort of basically understood that certain reptiles that laid eggs and others that didn't and it was all kind of was it's evolution it, uh, it's 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 the whole yeah. how did we get how did we get to human how, birth when did when did laying eggs it was about cracking the mystery of of birth really how did we go from egg laying to life bearing and she was looking at this intermediary lizards do both so they were a perfect specimen to study so I mean, interestingly a lot of the early psychologists started as biologists so she started with the organism the body well, it's interesting, too, because what she, I think, ultimately came to was it was environment that determined how certain things evolved, not just something in the genetics, which then later became her biggest thesis for anxiety, which I think is why she... Her doctorate, her doctorate, yes, yeah. that's right. It was her doctorate started off with the the way in which the cold weather, the environment shaped retaining the eggs and the growth of the placenta and so on. So, yes, it was fascinating. It really was incredible. And you could see, I, I found that fascinating with the book to trace back how her ideas, her ideas actually evolved. And she started with, as a biologist, a zoologist, with, with evolution. That's where she started. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here she is studying evolution, and it's beautifully as though it's being scripted, setting her up for what she will later be revolutionary in, which is the mind-body connection with anxiety. I just it, it, I just get fascinated reading the book because I go, oh my God, what if she hadn't gone on that trip? What if she hadn't done this? We would never have had her. Well, well, well then, then you have the other wonderful uh, bit of serendipity, which is where when she's on that um, study tour with Lancelot up in the um, Barrington Tops in the remote mountains and outside Sydney um, in the 20s, this is the 1920s, bear in mind, she meets on that trip a friend of Lancelot Harrison who is brought along who's a 
geologist at the time called Marcel Orousseau, who's a war, who's a war hero from First World War. And it was meeting him. I mean, apart from the fact that she, she would have seen the fight or flight instinct in lizards because she chased them and they demonstrate fight or they don't demonstrate fight so much as they certainly demonstrate flight. And yeah. uh, so she's working with lizards and then she, meets him and it's when she arrives in London to take up the Rockefeller Scholarship that she's completely wrecked. She's left the sanatorium, she's gone back to finish a doctorate, she's finished a doctorate even through, she's worked through this dreadful anxiety but she arrives in London and she's on the point of collapse, she thinks. And who turns up to meet her there but the friend she w went on the um, study trip in Australia with, the war hero Marcel Orso happens to be in London, he turns up, she says, um, she calls him John in the book. Oh, John, I feel I feel just absolutely dreadful and I, I can't go on. And he said, what's wrong? And she explained she's got these terrible heart palpitations. She's invaded by this nameless dread and she feels completely beside herself. Anyway, whatever she says to him, he says, oh, well, that's nothing. That's just like we soldiers had that in the war. And she said, what do you mean? He said, it's fear. He said, you're, 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 you're just letting, you just have to float past the fear. And she said, that was a got it moment. You mean I've been frightening myself? Yes, your symptoms are from frightening yourself. You just have to float past them. Now, how amazing to have the experience of that lab of fear, World War One, come yeah. to her, delivered by another scientist who also did a science degree, who could see the connection between the mind and the body and understand it in a way that I might add, if I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself here, subsequently gets lost in psychology. Like we forget the body, we stick with the mind oh, yeah. and we just lose the body. Um, there's a separation. I mean, it's, it's scholars who've said that, not just me. Yeah. And that's my favorite part of the book is when Marcel, who she calls John, says to her, and I, I quoted you here, um, he told her that her distress and racing heart were nothing. Quote, those are only symptoms of nerves. We all had those in the trenches. And yeah, he said her heart was programmed by fear. And then that's when she realized the whole time she'd been doing it herself. But and John explained to her or Marcel that in war, in actual dangerous situations, soldiers' hearts raced, but then the hearts continued to race after the threat had passed. And then that was priming them for panic. And their fear really only felt overwhelming in their body. And so the mind then concluded that something was terribly wrong, which continued to feed the fear. And which we'll get into in a minute. So she says in the book that you wrote that um, she went to bed that night and she laid there calmly and said, okay, I'll just go to sleep palpitating if necessary. And she says once she stopped engaging with her symptoms, her heartbeat went to normal and the whole thing cleared up. And the way she put it was, her fear was bluffing her, and so she stopped fighting and went to acceptance. And she, at that point, within a month, felt that she had been cured. And what I love about it is the word acceptance has actually really bothered a lot of people that, you know, they, they've listened to this podcast and we've talked about this before, and I can't say it enough. It doesn't mean accept it and love it and be like, oh, I have panic attacks and I'm going to keep having them. It's it's like ex, ex, accept it in the moment. Like let it overwhelm you. And as she says, even try to make it scarier if you can. Yeah, that's a quite a clever idea of hers. I thought I remember reading that and thinking that's brilliant. She'd say, see if you can make it worse. See if you can make it worse. You know. And because you know your mind is not going to do what you think, so it's really just the most clever way of getting it to go away. 
it, she says, I don't have a Dr. Weeks method. I'm using nature's way. And really, this is the simplicity of it. We have a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system. And her books just explain the nervous system. And this is what I think is just missing so much in psychiatry and psychology. Before we get to individual differences, what, how people were brought up, what that might have been their own biological inheritance, how they were treated as children, what their experiences were. We all need to understand our nervous system. This should be fundamental, you know. And yeah. the fact is people are getting tricked, as she said, by the idea that, you know, your your sympathetic nervous system is actually, as she said, quite unsympathetic. It's it, You can't control yeah. that. I mean, if a, if a tiger comes at you or a brick falls out of the sky, you know, you will move and duck and run and you won't think about that. You've got no control over that. And normally, the normal body, after the danger's passed, the parasympathetic nervous system moves in to slow the heartbeat, settle the gut, stop the I don't know, perspiring, all the different things. It's actually working on the body. You know, it's the body settling itself down. And yeah. the panicked, anxious person has forgotten that mind body and is using the mind is now feeding the body. And that is uniquely human. And that's where we're now going to get quite complicated and where I think she was right at the cutting edge of science is her idea of first fear and second fear. The first mm -hmm. fear is that ducking we do from the brick or running from the tiger. We don't we can't control that. We do it automatically. The trouble starts when the other we've got fear in the brain is not is not just one thing. You've got you could call that a dumb alarm if you like. That's what she would call first fear is like the dumb alarm goes off. You don't think about it. You just run. You just duck. But then there's a moment where your where the human brain, which can think and reflect on things, goes. Oh my goodness, I just got invaded by this shot of adrenaline. Now let's say you get it randomly. You're really overtired. You're in a supermarket queue and you've had an operation or you've had a terrible worry that's been consuming you. Suddenly you get a jolt of adrenaline that you would normally get when there was a tiger, except you're in a supermarket queue. Now what happens then is the other bit of your brain, the second fear goes, what was that? I didn't control that. It just came. It arrived. I must be going mad. Oh, no, I might get that feeling again. And at that point, you add second fear to first fear, and that's what perpetuates it. Now, and at, that's why it's so clever. And so, in a way, scientific and medical, her simple formulas, they sound simple, but they're based on scholarship, which is acceptance is designed to make your parasympathetic nervous system, which normally calms you down, which gets totally sidelined by the panic cycle, by you because you're staying in a continued state of fear. You're frightened of yourself now. Yeah. You, you acceptance, which she calls not enduring or putting up with, but to walk towards that tiger. Like let yourself walk towards that tiger in your head. Just let it burn through you. Totally accept the horrific fear that's burning through. Once you do that, that's the path through to the end of pain because that's when it gives your body a chance to stop pumping adrenaline to keep the adrenaline cycle going because you're re-adrenalizing yourself all the time unless you learn a bit of acceptance or a lot of acceptance, I guess, in some people's case. Yeah. Well, as she says, it's simple but not easy. Yeah. And her uh, timeline of what to do is face accept, float, let time pass. And float is, I suppose, the, the, the word she uses for let yourself have the panic attack, but like, don't try to stop it. 
Well, first, that's right, exactly. She's trying to get your whole body into a state where you're giving yourself distance on the experience and you're not refeeding it. That, and that's where I think a lot more work could be done. And it is being done. Joseph Ledoux in, um, in New York has done some marvelous work on the two circuits of fear in the brain. You know, people need to understand that there is a dumb alarm. Um, that is the, the fight, you know, the shot of adrenaline you get when you, when you have genuine fear, but some genuinely dangerous situations, but sometimes there's, you get that randomly and that's where the problem starts. But we need a bit more understanding on that. You know, it needs, a, and, and she explains it really simply by first and second fear and how to break that cycle. But it's really at the cutting edge and, I think the issue of practice is important too. I think yeah. if you look at her as saying, you know, again, putting aside your, you can go and have psychotherapy and I'm not, you know, saying that's not extremely useful for people who have individual issues, but there's a simple toolkit that everybody needs that they can practice and the brain gets trained in certain ways and she's trying to untrain the brain in a way and say there's a different way the way you're patterning your response is a bad pattern let's re-pattern it which is a scientific way can be proved of bringing the body back into peace by, by, by and you've got to practice it and you get setbacks but that's not the end of the world that's another chance to practice it so it's a life toolkit if you like so people can and and then it's simple and then it doesn't go into dark places that says there's something specially troubled about you or I mean there may be about some people have very difficult and different circumstances but for most of us who have anxiety it's it's pretty simple in some ways it really is. And it, it doesn't matter why it happened. It just matters that it is and how we're going to react to it. And, you know, I've a few things on my mind. I, I've talked to, of course, many neuroscientists. I did talk to Lisa Feldman Barrett on this I, show. I, I, I and I love how she pulls apart the myth of that we have this lizard brain and there's almost this morality involved with when we, quote, lose control. And that's not true. And this is, you know, mythology from Plato. And it's really simple. And Claire Weeks had touched on this, that our brain is constantly predicting based on our memories so that it can keep us alive. So, you know, um, in the good sense, I'm walking across the street, I almost get hit by a car, my brain knows, oh, wait a minute, this has happened before. This is a bad example, but um, I'm going to have you jump back from the car. Okay, great. But now we can train our brain the wrong way, right? So if I'm on a plane and I'm starting to get arousal of anxiety sensations, my brain can go, oh, I know what we did last time this happened. We panicked. So I'm going to do that again. And that's that's what we do to keep you safe. And now, unlike a lizard, I get to think and and stop or at least be aware. It's hard to think in a panic attack, but I think that that's what Claire Weeks is saying with the first and second fear, like I've had so many therapists say to me personally in sessions, oh, well, this fight or flight is from when we were cave people and it's an old evolutionary thing, but they never talk about, but the difference between us, even cave people, us and lizards or reptiles. We can or reflect animals, on it. We can reflect. Yeah, is the second fear. They don't have that. So if a lizard panics because something's coming and he runs away, He's not then, I don't think, constantly going, what if that happens again? It's just if it happens again, he runs again. Is that right? Well, it, it, the thing is that th this is the survival instinct. It shouldn't even be, I mean, Joseph Ledoux makes a very good point. It, in a way, it shouldn't be called fear. It's a, 
it's it's like a dumb alarm. It just goes right, off. It's, it's not an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's not at all what it is. But what it is is it's a huge full body experience. You know, after a, a you know a tiger has come at you, or you've just jumped away from a car, you think of what your body's doing. Your heart is pounding. You, mm. your head feels like it's going to explode. You, you know, we can all have different, but it's extremely physical. If you have a panic attack, it's extremely physical. So the first fight or flight dumb alarm that goes off is a full body experience. It's designed to get you ready to jump out of danger or run. So your every organ is engaged in that process of preparing your body to fight or to flee. So it is in the body. And this is what a lot of, I think, people when they talk about, you know, things about, you know, what happened in your past, all that contributed, yes, to the stressed person you may be, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't solve the problem of what you do now, which is that you are consumed with these awful feelings in your body and it's visceral it feels a panic attack isn't some thought some idea that oh my god i'm it's it's a visceral your whole body you want to run away you want to get out of that plane when you're frightened on pain you just want to be out of there your whole body is trying to so she understood that and understood how important the body's um, but and the minds then and her thing was she was known as the as as understanding the mind body connection how then the mind could refeed that initial dumb alarm and it could restart it by fearing it so what you're doing is you're you're fearing your own body because the feelings you get on that plane are they're all inside you and you are frightened you're going to get them again every time you get on that plane so it's what she was clever at realizing is it's less i'm probably not making myself as clear as i could but it's less about the thing outside the spider you think you're frightened about the plane you think it's more that what's happening inside you that you're frightened of and she's trying to address your attention to the insides and what she's saying is that inside of you that you're frightened of it you think it's the plane or the spider but actually you're frightening yourself because you are bringing (laughs) your symptoms to yourself so you have a role in this and i've got a and then she says look this is how the body works this is how the mind contributes to it this is called your nervous system and you are now frightened of it and you are not ill in her opinion until you become frightened of it it's like, uh, I don't know what horror movie this is, but there's a horror movie that's like, the call is coming from inside the house. And I always think that when I think about this, like the call is coming from inside the house. That's good. That's good. That's good. We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I had a therapist tell me once, and they were dead wrong. Her big thing was, we're going to solve your panic attacks if you can remember what you were thinking the moment before you started to panic. And so in her mind, if I could keep a diary of everything I was thinking the minute before I panicked, then we could find out what I was thinking. And I was like, I literally am usually thinking nothing. It's physical. No, I know, but there's got to be. And what she should have been asking is, what do you think while you're panicking or right after? What are the words you're telling yourself during the second fear? And so people I know that listen to this podcast and write in and they'll say, no, 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 but my panic attacks are so bad. They come out of nowhere and then they keep this or they keep going or they blah, blah, blah. And it's like, because it happens so seamlessly, um, the second fear, which is the what ifs, it just sort of seems like it's part of the first fear. But well, that's not. what she says. It's, yeah. it, it does. And also 
The first fear, as she points out, can come out of nowhere because you're sensitised. Bear in mind you've been worried, fretting, or you've had an operation as she had and I lost blood at some you know you're worn down yeah. and it and it is electric in its fierceness and this again is why people who read her book went oh my god the first person who understands me you know like you saying the psychologist doesn't quite get me she says the panic can be electric in its fierceness and savagery it can feel so terribly real and yet there is nothing to be frightened of so that is in itself terrifying so then you are terrified because you've thought about why you feel this way and you feel so ghastly so it becomes this circle and all you're doing is it's fear adrenaline fear adrenaline now mm. it's not easy to break that cycle but it sometimes it's quite simple some people find it once they understand they are cured immediately but you know the reason she has so many people saying oh my god and I, I get people writing to me still and they all say she saved my life she saved yeah. my life because she was the first person to say you know, stand back and not start delving into what could be special about you and your problems. She's saying what's common about you and your humanity, what's common to the body and the mind about nerves and nervous illness. Well, in, in the part of the book that you wrote about her first and second fear, um, this is, again, I'm reading your book to you, but Weeks didn't regard first fear as a mental state being beyond conscious control. She wrote about the fear adrenaline cycle. She described it as a flash, the first fear easy enough to identify as the survival response, and the second fear that was more of a challenge to describe. What is it? Um, it's usually a what if followed by a catastrophic thought, and the second fear is like, oh, I can't take it. I got to get out of here. I might make a fool of myself. But she said that second fear invoked another brain process in human beings, and that is of conscious emotion, which is a more recent evolutionary development. And so, like you said, the sensitized person, they get that fear. It's electric. And then comes the thoughts, what if, what if this happens? What if that? What if I'm dying? And then they become more concerned with the physical feelings of panic than they were with the original danger. Oh, this plane feels like it's crashing or my heart's racing. It's like, so then the two fears feel as one, as we were just saying. And so her acceptance and floating, as you write, was meant to short circuit that cycle. So it's almost like in those moments thinking of it as I've got to short circuit this electricity that's inside of me. It's it's you can't even rationalize it intellectually. It's it's just sometimes even knowing it, oh, the second fear has come in could sometimes for me be enough to start to calm down. Well you've got to get distance on that. You've got to give yourself a bit of distance on that first fear and not engage with it. And I think that's where acceptance means you stop or she what she wrote in the margin somewhere is don't fight in other words it's paradoxical but you must not fight fear if you continue to try and pull yourself together try and relax fight the fear that's she would say that is just completely wrong it goes against what the body needs the body needs to release to yield that's the only way forward. And that's where things like med um, Buddhism and yoga and things like that come in. In a, you know, in a, in, she was not at all, as far as I could find, I didn't see any huge Eastern influences on her because she was a scientist. She was talking about the body and the mind and the nervous system. But that, but that's where Buddhism and yoga and things are based on engaging the nervous system in the right way that keeps it, it the emotional regulation more ordered and not disordered. And so many people have been treated so strangely and irrelevantly for anxiety over the years where they could have 
had it had it quite simply explained to them and even if they continued to need you know discussion and help and, and advice they could go on to have that but they would at least have the foundations for understanding that there's no real mystery here about why they feel so totally bizarre you know but she also talked about it's it's hinted at a little bit in your book i mean not not hinted at but it's it's talked about a little bit that our brain habits are entrenched in memory. And that gets back to that. The brain is predicting what to do to keep us safe. And so fear is a habit. Well, look, so much, look, first and second fear. As I say, Joseph Ledoux has written brilliantly about this very contemporaneously about the two circuitries in the brain and how if we got proper better names for them, um, yeah. we would have a better way of understanding anxiety, which goes, but I wrote to him, I said, this is like first and second fear that Claire Weeks talked about. She tried to explain how you should understand your brain and fear in the brain. Habit is so important and she is trying to teach you a new set of habits. And I think it's no surprise, Jen, that I came across the information time and time again that from people I've spoken to and people who've seen other people who've benefited from her books, everyone's got copies of her books that are all sort of dog-eared and they've been read and read. And that's because, and I guess it goes back to why people have psychotherapy fears, but because if it's helpful, people need to learn new habits and they have to go back to her books and they have to listen again and they have to practice again and again the way and 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 she says you will recover you will get better if you exactly follow this now that can sound like a mad cult but all she's doing is saying <laughs> right <laughs> you know is all she's doing is saying look this is the way your body works if you give your body a chance to follow these simple rules you will break the cycle of fear and adrenaline and you will allow your body to heal itself and your mind to heal itself and i think that that was um, and all of these things were so ahead of their time and they're still frankly the idea of acceptance therapy and the idea of the whole nervous system is coming back into vogue in a bit because we need to be able to manage our nervous systems and first to manage them we need to be able to understand them and you know yes there are contributors as you said it could be you had a very difficult childhood or you had particular circumstances or you have a biological tendency towards sensitivity or whatever um I, and i don't i'm no expert on any of that but it's yeah. it's really it's really a case of practicing new habits and understanding that mind body connection in a useful way that can it may not mean you're free for you you know it's not going to be a magic talisman it means you never get stress or tension in your life but it gives you a toolkit to deal with it yeah and you know like she said I'm reading your book to you again her idea of a cure was that panicking again was an almost inevitable part of recovery. So you have to learn how to cope with the panic itself. You have to panic without panicking and not be afraid of it. So, you know, in other words, if you're recovered, you can say I'm cured and someone would say, well, what if you panic again? You go, I don't, I don't care if I panic again. Well, that's, that's the cure, not the, that, I'm never going to panic again. Right. That's a very, I think that's a very, very important point because, um, you know, she, it, it, that is, again, it comes back to acceptance. It comes back to the idea that, you know, look, who's going to welcome having another panic attack? Everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, I still want to run away from it. But what she's saying is, look, if you do get it again, you know, you, it's, it, you've been there, you know there's a way through it and you know the way to the other side of it. And so 
I think that that is just so hugely confirming. And there are lots of people for whom her books have basically taken away the worst of the panic by simply understanding it. Um, I think in yeah, any for case. some people, once you find out it's not unique to you, it's like oh, that you know. And she was one of the first people that talked about that that inner voice that that can say to you, "Look, you've been here before." And you know, again, this the yeah. brilliant, brilliantly combining in some ways sort of um, simple wisdom and, 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 and advice with the science of it. I mean, the inner voice is a great concept of hers that you can, you've, and, and, and also hope and confidence. She knows, mm. and we all know the, she, um, you, we all know when something makes you feel confident or you feel hopeful, think how you feel in your body when you feel mm. hope or confidence, you feel great, you know, and mm -hmm. it's about feeling in that wide sense of the word feeling, feeling in the mind and body. You just feel great. And she knew that so often people didn't offer hope. And what she was offering her readers was, look, you feel as though you're a bit mad and, you, and, mm -hmm. and you're overwhelmed and bewildered and totally distressed. But look, sit down and I'll talk you through it. It's quite simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's straightforward. And um, so I, that was such a relief to people and so incredibly useful. And I just feel that that simplicity and basic understanding of the mind and body gets so overly complicated by, by, by people, unnecessarily so, who are trying to help other people. And, you know, I think she just really was unique in, in, in a way in being able to explain this. And people don't understand the heritage. A lot of people who do use her ideas today just don't understand on, you know, whose shoulders they rest. Yeah. And I love that she said intelligent, thoughtful people can be disturbed by their own thoughts. I just, you know, that's so important to remember. And, you know, so just to like rush through, I just, some of those fun things about her life, you know, at one point she says, you know, I'm going to give up this, you know, studying and I'm going to be um, a singer. And she travels to Europe with her friend, Elizabeth Coleman. And, and then for her, it was like, well, I'm going to teach singing lessons as well. And there's the science of singing and you know, she didn't end up making it as a singer, really going for it, went back to Australia. But I love that notion that everything she did was sort of just still creeping along towards the becoming a writer about anxiety. You know, she knew then how much breathing can change the nervous yes. system and, and thought, you know, I'll help singers with the science. Singing is a science. And she's right about that. But, you know, thinking of how many more people she helped than singers is, is wild. I know it is. And also she had another really interesting idea that I, I wish um, could be developed by somebody. She had this idea of glimpsing. You know, she would say to people, especially people who had depression, which I know she called depletion. She saw depression before anyone else did. They would now call it rather more you know, grandiosely as a comorbid, depression and anxiety, comorbidities, yeah. <laughs> you know. She just said, look, you know, if you have a, adrenaline pumping along for, you know, for long enough, you're going to get depleted and you're going to end up with depression. And that makes so much sense to call it mm -hmm. depletion, you know. But she had this idea of glimpsing and that is no matter how bad you feel, um, and, you you know, people in, certainly particularly in depression can feel just unspeakable, Try to glimpse, even if it's only just a few seconds a day, try to glimpse another way of glimpse. Uh, um, I, I've probably forgotten because it's so long ago since I wrote about glimpse, glimpsing, but the idea was just to glimpse something better, glimpse a change. And 
I think that's so powerful because you can, in bad times, glimpse the idea of feeling different or mm. better times. And that little thing is changing. That gives your body a little shot of something else other than just adrenaline and misery. And is it has a retraining purpose in a way, getting back to this idea of retraining your responses. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This 
is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. A few things just really quick about her. You know, she she had her own chemical imbalance theory, and I, uh, I'm sure she'd be happy to know that I agree with her, but that nervous illness comes first, and the chemical imbalance in our brain follows. So if you fix, again, it's the same thing. Fix the nervous illness, and the chemical imbalance will right itself. It's not like, oh, people with anxiety, they were born with this chemical imbalance, and we need to, you know, know. it's like, well, if you're fretting and anxious, and then you're depleted, which can make you depressed, it will mess up the serotonin and the dopamine in your brain. But if you fix all that, then it comes back. It's not inherently like you didn't have these chemicals when you were born because, again, we can't test that. So, Well, it, it is, it's sort of simple in a way, isn't it, too? You, you are a mind and a body. You can't separate them. So we, she met this Marcel and, you know, they ended up being engaged. And then she had to make this decision, uh, which was she decided she loved medicine more than the idea of marriage. And she broke off the engagement, chose medicine. He ended up marrying a really good friend of hers. And, but I find that, you know, again, environment, not just her home environment or what was directly next to her, but the world as her environment informed so much of her understanding of anxiety. And I love how much for her gender played into it that, you know, again, people were talking about agoraphobia and she didn't embrace that word as you, as you tell it told us in the book, um, because it's, you know, agoraphobia to her was not a fear of leaving the house or wide open spaces. It's a, people who are afraid of what's inside themselves and who, who are going to panic when Jen, they get if I can just interrupt away. there a little yeah. bit, what, just to say that it is interesting. She did write a book called Agoraphobia, and I've forgotten how long it but that was the publishers. Agoraphobia had become very trendy as a concept. And look, she did she didn't know people suffered from something called agoraphobia, but she saw anxiety. She didn't. She didn't chop it up into different disorders, like yeah. um, as as other people, general anxiety disorder, and you know, uh, she treated OCD. She treated a lot of these things. She they were they manifested themselves differently, but she saw the commonality in them rather than the differences in them, and she was very unified in her theory. And I think that's where. We're, is coming back to a bit um, in, in thinking, instead of chopping everything up, seeing what's common about them as well as what's different. And you had said in the book that, you know, back when she was doing this work, um, the DSM had not, there was no anxiety, panic attack, agoraphobia yet. There weren't 27 different ways you said of slicing anxiety. There was no words for it. And what's been an interesting journey for me hosting this podcast is I was very insistent for a while on you know, let's name it so that we can do something about it. But again, I'm, I think I'm back in the clear weeks thing where it's like, that's fine if, you know, there's no shame so we can name, but it's the nervous system. So it doesn't matter if you are agoraphobic or um, social anxious. It's all the same solution. Darwin called it, there are good things about splitters and good things about lumpers. In other words, some people split everything down and find special things about individual areas and other people have coherent lumping ideas where they like to see the big picture and there's a role for both but let's face it it's it's very important to find the commonality in a lot of these conditions 
that I think you well let's that's it, not so much important is it's possibly more useful to see what's common to them than treat, you know, what, them all as being distinctly different problems. It's like talking about people with all these disorders when at, at heart they're very anxious and that anxiety is a very human thing and they've, and they've learned bad patterns and they've come to, as she would say, they've become tricked by their nerves. And if you do that, if you, once you become tricked by your nerves, you will perpetuate this really disturbing process in your mind and your body and it's not because you have some special inadequacy or badness or whatever that is causing this it's just a very human um very human problem and 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 it's a it it can be understood and it can be treated what what i love about what you said about what was agoraphobia but really just this nervous system issue is she did think more women suffered it uh, from it but she said it's a cultural problem, not a gender problem. So to her, it was like a woman's life at home lends itself to this anxiety, agoraphobia, but a nervously ill man can have the same symptoms, but he's got a different life. And she was saying, you know, city-bound executive syndrome. <laughs> yes, the ones that didn't, didn't like on. flying, fear of flying, that's right. Yeah, and then, but the wife might be home because societally she's just stuck. This is where she's told she has to be. And then, you know, then the men go out drinking to cure their nerves and they come home angry and now there's a way so there is so much environmental um yes that is yes, you know yes. different now uh, and uh i i thought that was fascinating that there was a, a gender component to it and she really hated housework and <laughs> well and that's really, right well she did, did she did yeah. absolutely and she was always spoiled in her life because she lived with members of her family and she had a her, her partner beth coleman the pianist they all thought she was a genius and everyone did all that everyone else did all the housework claire claire hated it but she see she also saw all those practical the book was not only sort of medically and scientifically ahead of its time but it was also sort of hugely practical in the suggestions it made for people because she had this idea of occupation and she'd say look if you don't like housework you know do do anything find something else to do that you like it could be in those days there were you know women didn't have many choices but it, you yeah. could do anything and she used to say just look you know, just paint the door red, but but get off that bed and 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 be occupied. She saw a real value in in occupation. That lying inert on the bed was just not the way to go. And that's why she didn't see the idea of relaxation as hugely useful as a concept in itself. Because you had to pass through panic. You had to move forward with the panic. If you see what I mean, it's like if yeah. you're fighting it. Or trying to relax. Trying to relax is so unrelaxing. Um, acceptance is not easy, but that's the way to go rather than trying to relax. And her telling a housewife, you know, do do anything else. I really feel like that tied in with her theory that a lot of people with that kind of anxiety did have self esteem problems. And so if you do something that you go, oh my god, look at what I did, it increases your self esteem. Even if you get over your, you know, you pass through your panic once that you can actually have that and say, oh, I, I overcame that. You know, it was, she was like teaching people to build, to build well, up build, their build up, that's right, build up this by building up good habits of living too. Yeah. Um, she was quite funny about um, parenting as well. It did make me laugh. She, she would say, you know, and when, when Christmas is coming, she said children are raised to be too 
ex- you know, she said the way you raise children is important. She said instead of saying, you know, Christmas is going to be here in a few days and Sandra will be turning me lots of presents, she'd say, just say, and it's rather amusing, you know, there's another 10 days before Christmas, so that gives you lots of time to go go and do other useful things. She was rather pious about <laughs> all of that. But you could see what she was getting at, which was, you know, you just don't sort of unnecessarily have to rev everybody up because interestingly, and I, I don't know about you, Jen, but I think the other side to um, um, fear and anxiety is joy and responsiveness. I mean, you know, people's yeah. people, she used to say, I, I feel sorry for the person who's never had anxiety because they've never experienced the highs as well. You know, in that sense, she's identifying in a non-pathological way the slightly bipolar quality of the anxious state, which is it's capable of great joys and great responsiveness as well. Yeah, she was saying, you know, anxious people feel music more deeply. Yes, and Yeah, yes. And she feels bad for people that don't. And, and I, I think I would agree with that. Um, so basically, you know, she goes all through, all through these career changes, goes back to school, becomes a doctor. I mean, just, you know, a doctor, seeing patients. And this is where, right before she writes her book, for years she starts noticing in her patients that they have nervous illnesses, a.k.a. anxiety. <laughs> she's, she's letting them come to her house, call her. She goes to their house. She spends hours with them. I think a couple patients moved in. I mean, she must have been seen as such... <laughs> And eccentric. And, but it was because she studied, as you wrote in your book, she, because she got to study these people for hours and look at all their different symptoms and find the common ground. Then she writes that first book, Hope and Help for Your Nerves, which, you know, was this bestseller. And then it became an international bestseller years later. It seemed like she had this, I mean, what she wrote the book in her 60s. So through her 80s, she keeps. It's almost like it comes in waves, right? She goes back to Australia for a little while. Then, oh, the Mike Douglas show and Jack, you know, Dick Cavett. And all of a sudden, all these like late night shows in America want her on. And she goes to America and then she goes to the BBC. Robert DuPont told me that when he visited the White Plains Hospital in York, where they had the first phobia clinic, he said that the queue of people around the block with their dog-eared copies of her book lining up to thank her for saving their lives. And everyone, you know, she'd go on television programs and I've seen quotes from producers who said they crashed the switchboard afterwards, the BBC had her on, the the mail, the post office couldn't handle the mail afterwards. You know, people felt seen, you know, to use her, you know, terrible cliche, seen and understood, you know, by this woman in a way that they just had never before. And it's remarkable because, you know, there's a a lot is made of first-hand contact, but she was doing this through a book, you know. This was a book that was was giving, bringing such huge relief and 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 literally, I mean, I was contacted the other day by recently by an American um, writer who's written a number of books on Hollywood, and he's writing his own memoirs, and he's devoting an entire chapter of his book to Claire Weeks. She saved my life. I said, "You and everybody else says that." Yes, you I know. <laughs> I want to read a quote from her that you put in your book. So, this Doctor Dupont, who started the, um, you know, uh, he, he's the first. founder of the. It's the A. AA, I'm going to forget it. The American Association for Anxiety and Depression (AA). Oh, D-H. that's he's, right. He's the founder yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. She So he was talking to her about panic and she mentioned, you know, that she did have occasional attacks of panic at night and, and he expressed his sympathy and she just went off and she said, quote, my boy, 
You may be good with drug problems, but you have no talent for the treatment of anxiety. What you call a panic attack is nothing but a few chemicals temporarily out of place in my brain. It means nothing to me. So your sympathy shows you don't understand the problem or the solution. Thus, I do not want or need your sympathy. It does not bother me. It is unimportant. <laughs> she was so sassy. <laughs> but I love that. That's right. It's great. And you can get a very clear picture that, you know, and if you've ever had panic and you've woken up in a shock and you're invaded by that unexpected panic attack in the night, that if you could just go, oh, that's it, that's that thing again, that's different from going, oh, my God, what's this? This is never going to end. I'm never going to get to sleep again. You know, you, you can see what she's getting at with that statement. Right. And she's trying to say, you know, I don't treat those thoughts as important. That's how I recovered. And so I can't be so precious about it. Like, yes, I suffer, you know? Um, and lastly, I would just love this. Um, she was, you know, your book starts out in this really great, almost like a movie would open, you know, it's, it's the, uh, later in her life. And she's speaking at this conference with all these psychiatrists and people are just, you know, not taking her seriously because she was thought of as self thought of as a self-help writer. And it wasn't until her third book that finally people started to show her some respect. But I mean, none of these people I feel could do what she did. I mean, the the fact that Freud was, con you know, like the big thing when she started out, but slowly people realized that really nothing he said about you want to have sex with your mom is going to help anyone with their anxiety. You know? <laughs> well, she, like, cru she crucially, which is, I found fascinating. He, he, never treated the soldiers in World War II, unlike a lot of his colleagues. He stuck with um, he stuck with his private clients um, in, in, I think, look, no, don't hold me to this, I think it was Vienna, but um, but I know he stuck with his private entity. But the people who treated the soldiers, they appreciated that fear was at the basis of the disturbance, not the fact that they had an Oedipal complex or some <laughs> sexual. And, 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 and her teacher in University College London who taught her about the nervous system, again, her life all feeds towards her understanding. Graf Nelliot Smith, who, who who did treat soldiers in World War One, he couldn't stand Freud, and he said he 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 thought it was thinly veiled pornography. He described him as a sexologist, and he'd just dismiss him. And he saw fear as being at the heart, and and he wrote a a little pamphlet on that, which I'm sure she read. And she saw fear as at the basis of so much nervous illness. I mean, not she just didn't have much time. And and look. You know, yes, she wasn't dismissing that childhood influences could play a role, but they were past. Now we had to deal with the here and now. But I think it was her identification of fear rather than sex that was, you know, profoundly important. I was just thinking about, do you have any opinions on the term, you know, there's all this, it's May right now is Mental Health Awareness Month and people will say things like, let's normalize taking care of our mental health. And I think we're never going to get anywhere if we keep using the word mental, because I feel like it's already a, a quote, bad word. It's already thought of as an adjective, not a noun. I mean, wouldn't it be um, an homage to Clear Weeks to call it our brain health or our nervous system health or something? I'm, I'm absolutely with you, Jen. I, you know, I often ponder these ideas and about how even I can understand them. I feel really discomforted by a lot of, I don't like all that stuff about mental health and mental illness. I mean, when I say don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, I feel people need help. But again, it's like a notion about hygiene or good 
personal hygiene. It's it's good mental, I suppose it's mental, I'll, I'll reach for the same words, but as you say, I think it was better to call it understanding your nervous system is a better way of joining us in our humanity, not in a way just to make people feel better for the sake of it, but just that it's really important to see us all on a normal spectrum. I mean, that's not to say there aren't maybe, she wasn't dealing with psychoses of certain, I mean, I'm not suggesting there aren't those terrible, people don't have particular and terrible areas that I don't know anything about. But I right, do know she something. Mentioned it's, it's, not, um, it's not manic depression, it's not postpartum, we're just talking about like our basic anxiety. Yeah. I haven't got a name, Jen. We'll have to think no. one up. <laughs> we'll have to think one up. But I like for now brain health or nervous system. I think it's about that nervous system because it is yeah. it's in our body and our mind and And let's get some and let's and, get that into the language of into schools explaining things about the mind and the body in a very simple way to kids so that, you know, that sort of thing could be taught, as I was used to think, you know, along with things like physical health. You know, you could Mm -hmm. just explain the basis of anxiety to children in a simple way that when they think they're feeling very different from other kids, you could start off. I just feel we need a very fresh approach to a practical approach to how you deal with these issues rather than taking people into dark individual complicated spaces that you know maybe that's necessary for particular in particular cases people have their own special difficulties but we all have a commonality and let's deal with that bit in an open frank way rather than everyone um, and and then from that point, people can go down whatever path they choose, but they've got a steadier foundation. I feel like that foundation's not there. As you say, it's treated as mental illness or a disorder or something like that, whereas it just should be part of what we all understand about life. I agree. Thank you so much, <laughs> Judith, for coming on to my show. I just want to thank you too, um, Jen. That I've listened to your podcast. They're fantastic. They feel a real, I feel I listen to a lot of people. I mean, as part of writing the book, I've listened to lots and lots of um, different um, speakers and I really enjoy the way in which you bring in experts, but you are able to so intelligently communicate the issues to people in a really useful, practical way. That's rare and really helpful, I think. Oh, thank you. So thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, and Claire Weeks, wherever she is, can hear us talking about her. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Judith as much as I did. It was so wonderful, and I miss Australia so much. If I have any listeners there, I haven't been to your beautiful, beautiful country in, I think, four years, and for someone who used to go every year, it's so makes me so sad, um, but with my work schedules and everything. I don't know when I'm getting back there, but big hugs, big hugs for me. Anyway, so here are the takeaways for this episode about the life of Dr. Claire Weeks. Dr. Claire Weeks was the first person to treat people and write self-help books about what we now know as agoraphobia, panic attacks, and anxiety. Dr. Weeks experienced panic attacks, which is why she was so successful at treating others with the same symptoms she had been there herself. Her books were so popular because she wrote as though she were talking to you directly from a place of understanding. Her first book is titled Hope and Help for Your Nerves. It's been translated in many languages, and the title changes depending on what country it's being sold in. One version of this book was also known as Pass Through Panic. 
Claire Weeks was aiming for a Rockefeller Fellowship to further her scientific studies of biology and evolution in England when she had a botched surgery for a sore throat and was told that she had the highly contagious tuberculosis and was sent to live in a sanatorium for six months by herself. When she got out, she began experiencing panic attacks and a rapid heart rate that she did not know was anxiety. She thought that she had a deadly heart condition. It was Dr. Weeks' study as a biologist of reptiles and how they lay eggs that led her to understanding the environment affected their evolution, and that would later inform her hypothesis that an anxious person's immediate environment, more than generics, generics, <laughs> genetics, determined their level of anxiety or if they experienced symptoms of anxiety at all. When Dr. Claire Weeks was on a study tour up in the Barrington Tops Mountains outside of Sydney, Australia in the 1920s, she met a geologist named Dr. Marcel Arusso. He was a World War I veteran. And years later, she ran into this old friend of hers again in London. And she was so anxious, she was on the verge of a collapse. She told Marcel of her heart palpitations and her, quote, nameless dread. Marcel told her that soldiers felt that way in war, and he introduced her of the concept of floating past the moment. Claire, after talking to Marcel, realized that she had just been frightening herself with the thoughts she was thinking about her heart palpitations, which caused further symptoms. Claire changed her outlook on her heart palpitations and would go to bed and say to herself, I'll allow my heart to palpitate if necessary. And once she stopped engaging with her symptoms, it all cleared up. She described it as all of this time, her, quote, fear had been bluffing her. Dr. Claire Weeks also recommends trying to make a panic attack worse during the midst of one. And my edit note here is because usually that stops it from getting worse. Dr. Claire Weeks used to say about her methods to float through panic attacks, I don't have a Dr. Weeks method. I'm using nature's way. Her books simply explained the nervous system. Dr. Weeks said that acceptance of a panic attack is not enduring or putting up with one, but walking towards the fear. Let it burn through you. That's the path through to the end of panic. It gives the body the chance to stop pumping adrenaline. Trying to stop a panic attack just re-adrenalizes yourself. Dr. Claire Weeks' timeline of handling a panic attack is to face, accept, float. Let time pass. Don't try to stop the panic attack. This is simple to do, but not easy because many people have a hard time telling their body to stop fighting because it can feel like you're giving in to dying. Unlike lizards who can go into fight or flight when they're in fear, humans can stop and reflect. Claire says that we have the first fear, the exposure to the feelings of fear, even if they're out of the blue, and then the second fear, and that's thoughts that we think that end up scaring us in response to the panic attack. And now, our anxiety becomes about the second fear, and that part is preventable. Panic isn't an emotion, it's a full body physical experience. Dr. Claire Weeks felt that panic attacks were simply people fearing their own bodies. She said you are not ill until you become frightened of your own nervous system. The cycle of a panic attack is simply fear, adrenaline, fear, adrenaline, on a loop. Trying to quote, relax during a panic attack isn't the way to get through one either. It's the same as fighting. The body needs to release, to yield. It's similar to a Buddhist attitude, even though Claire Weeks did not have any Eastern spiritual influence. 
to Claire Weeks, being cured of panic attacks didn't mean that you never had a panic attack again, but instead that you didn't fear having one again. As always, if you want to read these takeaways, you can go to my website, jenkirkman.com, click on Anxiety Bites. They should be right there. Also, the link is in the show notes. The link to everything about Judith Hoare is in the show notes. The link to this book is in the show notes, as well as uh, to more information on Dr. Claire Weeks. And as always, leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That really helps more people find the podcast. And I will have one last listener email episode, I think, before the end of season one. So please send me an email anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. You can ask any questions or give us any tips that you have for handling your anxiety. And don't forget, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.